A man stood on deck of a normal ferry, taking a drag of his cigarette. Around him, he noticed students walking and chatting, with others heading in to have their share of the breakfast being served in the cafeteria. He took another puff of his cigarette, enjoying the normal Wednesday morning. All of a sudden, the ferry creaked and lurched, tilting hard to the right, and before he could wonder what had happened, the man heard a loud bang. Welcome to Shipwreck Sunday, where we investigate disasters at sea and the impact that they have on the world today. My name is Eleanor. Today we will be discussing part one of the heartbreaking sinking of MV Sewol, a South Korean Roro ferry which sank and killed hundreds of Danwon students. If you are interested in hearing a small piece of South Korean maritime history, stay tuned. Quick disclaimer for our younger audience before we dive in. This story does include details of a maritime disaster resulting in the loss of a vessel, conspiracies, and death that may be disturbing to some audiences. Viewer discretion is advised for those under the age of 13. Please keep in mind that I'm not a mariner or expert in the field of maritime history, but I've done my research. Okay, everyone, let's get into it. Originally, MV Sewol was a Roro, or roll-on, roll-off ferry, built for Oshima Unyu in Kagoshima, Japan, and her original name was Ferry Naminui. She would have two owners in Japan, Oshima Unyu and A-Line Ferry Company. She was built by Hayashi Kane Shipbuilding and Engineering Company Limited in their Nagasaki, Japan yard. She was built as yard number 1006 in 1994 and would be launched on April 13, 1994, being completed in June of 1994. That sadly means that Kurt Cobain, lead singer of my favorite band Nirvana, would never have seen this ship's completion since he died eight days prior on April 5, 1994. Moving on from grunge, let's get into the specs of this vessel. Ferry Naminonui, as we know her right now, was a Roro ferry, as I stated earlier. For our younger listeners, a roll-on, roll-off ferry, also known as a Ropax ship, is a cargo ship that is designed to carry wheeled cargo, like cars, motorcycles, trucks, semi-trailer trucks, buses, trailers, and railroad cars. They are driven on and off the ship on their own wheels or by a platform vehicle through a door that opens in either the bow, stern, or sometimes both. Hence the name Roll On, Roll Off. Ferry Naminui loaded cars onto the vessel via the ramp and door in the stern and a side ramp, which would later be removed. She displaced 6,835 gross tons for her internal volume and 3,794 deadweight tons, which is the weight of how much fuel she could carry. In imperial measurements, she was 477 feet and 9 inches long, had a beam of 72 feet and 2 inches wide, a draft of 20 feet and 6 inches deep, and a depth of 45 feet and 11 inches deep. In metric measurements, that's a length of 145.61 meters long, a beam of 22 meters wide, a draft of 6.26 meters deep, and a depth of 14 meters deep. For capacity, as Ferry Naminoi, she could carry 804 passengers, 90 cars, and 60 trucks with a crew complement of 35. Later as MV Sewol, she could carry 921 passengers, 88 cars, and 68-ton trucks with a crew complement of 35. Legally, the vessel had a carrying capacity for 180 vehicles and 154 regular cargo containers. 
To carry all of this, she needed to have some hefty propulsion power. She was equipped with two diesel United Peelstick 12PC2 6V 400 engines that could generate 11,912 kilowatts or 15,974 horsepower combined. This powered two shafts with fixed-pitch propellers as well as bow and stern thrusters, and this allowed Ferry Naminui to reach average service speeds of 21.5 knots, which is 39.8 kilometers per hour or 24.7 miles per hour. At roughly 22 knots, which is 41 kilometers per hour and 25 miles per hour, her range was up to 264 miles or 425 kilometers. Her IMO number, which is a unique ship identifier, was 9105205, and her first port of registry was Naze, Japan. Ferry Namanui serviced Japan dutifully for 18 years between 1994 and 2012 with no incidents. That's right, no collisions, no accidents, no deaths. After this, she was sold to Chung Heijin Marine Company in Incheon, South Korea, for 11.6 billion South Korean won, which is 11.3 million US dollars on October 8, 2012. Chong Hye Marine Company was controlled by the family of businessman Yu Byung Un, and the ship's port of registry would change to Incheon, South Korea. Ferry Namanue was renamed MV Seawall, and the dilapidated vessel would be refurbished from October 12, 2012 to February 12, 2013. These modifications would include adding extra passenger cabins on the 3rd, 4th, and 5th decks, which raised the passenger capacity by 117 and increased the weight of the ship by roughly 239 tons. The cargo space was also expanded, and these modifications moved her center of gravity upward by 0.51 meters, or 1 foot and 8 inches, as well as creating a left-right imbalance. These modifications were normally considered illegal, so keep that in mind. She underwent investigations that included an inclining test, which is a test performed on a ship to determine its stability, and she received her ship certification and the certification for the prevention of sea pollution on February 12, 2013. Her cargo capacity was changed from 1,450 tons to 987 tons, which increased the amount of ballast needed by 1,333 tons to 1,703 tons. Weirdly enough, the Korea Shipping Association did not know her cargo limits, but they have the responsibility of managing ferries. The Korean Coast Guard did not know these limitations either, though they were responsible for managing the shipping association. Later, the Board of Audit and Inspection found that the Korean Shipping Association's licensing was based upon falsified documents, which is so reassuring. Also reassuring was the 37 tons of extra marble further added to the gallery room at the bridge deck on the back of the ship after the inspection was completed. Keep this all in mind for later, we're going to need it. If you want to hear about another unstable ship that capsized, check out our episode on MV Princess of the Stars. If you're enjoying this video, let me know down in the comments section below. Don't forget to give this video a like and subscribe to our channel for more stories like this. If you're on an audio-only format like Spotify, Samsung Podcasts, Amazon Music, or another podcast service, make sure to subscribe for more episodes and leave us a 5-star review since it does help us reach more listeners like you. Okay, let's get into MVC Wall's career before her sinking. She entered service in South Korea on March 15, 2013. 
Her schedule consisted of three round trips every week from Incheon to Jeju, which is the southernmost province of the Republic of Korea. Each one-way voyage, which was 425 kilometers or 264 miles, took 13 and a half hours to complete, meaning it would take roughly 27 hours for one round trip without loading times. It was reported in February of 2014 that MVC Wall had successfully passed yet another vessel safety inspection by the South Korean Coast Guard, which had taken place on February 19, 2014. This was done after an intermediate survey had been taken, all with the intent to ensure she remained up to the standards required by the Korean Register of Shipping. An MVC wall had successfully made the round trip from Incheon to Jeju and back 241 times until disaster would strike. On Tuesday, April 15, 2014, 102 years after the sinking of RMS Titanic to the day, MVC Wall was scheduled to leave Incheon at 6.30 p.m. Korea Standard Time. However, a fog lay over the port that reduced visibility to less than one kilometer, or roughly half a mile, and this led the Incheon Vessel Traffic Service to issue a low visibility warning around 5.30 p.m. The Shipping Association would postpone MVC Wall's departure after receiving this warning, though the Vessel Traffic Service would later retract this warning around 8.35 p.m., and the Shipping Association checked the weather conditions with the operator of the Palmito Lighthouse and consulted with the Korean Coast Guard, and after all of this, they lifted all restrictions on MVC Wall's departure. MVC Wall would depart Incheon around 9pm, and she was the only ship to leave port that night. That night, she had a total of 2,142.7 tons of cargo aboard, as well as 185 cars. As for people on MVC Wall, there was a total of 443 passengers and 33 crew, with 325 of these passengers being high school students on a field trip from Danwon High School in Ansan, South Korea. Five of the 443 passengers were of non-Korean nationality, but we don't know any more specifics other than that about these five. 69-year-old Captain Lee Jong Seok was mastering the ship as a replacement for the ship's regular captain, and Lee had over 40 years of experience on the ocean, and he'd traveled this route before, so he was comfortable with it. He was hired on a one-year contract with a monthly salary of 2.7 million won, which equates to roughly 2,500 US dollars. Of the 33 crew that worked under Lee, 19 were irregular part-time workers. For anyone that's had a job before, when working with part-time employees that don't know the routine, it could really throw things off. And I'm sure the same can be said when working on a ship. Let's pause for a second. This is important for later when the ship sinks. Subsequent investigations found problems concerning the state of MVC Wall at the time of departure in Incheon. Despite the fact she was only allowed to carry 987 tons of cargo, she was loaded with a whopping 2,142.7 tons of cargo, as I stated earlier, and it was improperly secured to really add icing to the cake. Only 761.2 tons of ballast were taken aboard, and her ballast tanks were poorly maintained, and the voyage before this one had been made without making ballast adjustments during the journey. MVC Wall's regular captain, Captain Shin, had warned Chong Hae Jin, the ship's owners, about the decrease in stability and had attributed this to the removal of the ship's side ramp. Later, he claimed the company threatened to fire him if he continued his objections, and his warnings were even relayed through an official working for the Incheon Port Authority on April 9, 2014. 
To this, an official for Chong Hee Jin replied that he'd deal with anyone making the claims, a very ominous threat. Shin had also requested a repair from the malfunctioning steering gear on April 1st, 2014, but of course, nothing was done about it. During a stability test back on January 24th, 2014, the Korean Register of Shipping had noted that MVC wall had become, quote, too heavy and less stable after modifications were made. But were any modifications made to make her safer? No, they weren't. And not only this, but the owners put in so little effort, I'm absolutely flabbergasted. In 2013, for the entire year, Chong Hae-jin had spent a mere two U.S. dollars on safety training for the crew, and it had been used to buy a paper certificate. Yes, you heard me right. Two dollars for safety training. Two dollars is how much the safety of their passengers and crew were worth to them in 2013. Okay, let's get back to our voyage and move into Wednesday, April 16th, 2014. At 7.30 a.m. Korean Standard Time, Third mate Park Han-kyul and helmsman Cho Jun-ki took over the watch from the night shifters. And at this time, MVC Wall was heading at a course of about 165 degrees at a speed of about 20 knots, which is 37 kilometers per hour and 23 miles per hour. And she was operating two radar devices. Around 8.20 a.m., the ship was roughly 3 to 5 kilometers or 1.9 to 3.1 miles from entering the main goal channel. And here, Park ordered Cho to change the steering system from autopilot to manual steering. MVC Wall arrived at the mouth of the channel at 8.27 a.m. at a course of around 137 degrees. The visibility was good, the wave height was about half a meter or 1 foot and 8 inches, and the wind speed was between 4 and 7 meters per second, or between 13 and 23 feet per second. According to the Beaufort scale chart, the wind was anywhere from a strong breeze to a severe gale, though take this with a grain of salt since the Beaufort scale chart is no longer widely used as it once was. Taking into account the strong winds, we also have to take into account the strong currents in the mangled channel, which make it extremely important to be cautious when steering a ship through it. At the time of the incident, the conditions were decent and MVC Wall was making her way on a route that was frequently used. The wider areas of the Mangle Channel do have rock hazards and shallow waters that can cause major issues. However, they weren't in the immediate vicinity of the ship's usual path through here. Later, prosecutors and some news organizations would label Park as being inexperienced and unfamiliar with the channel. However, the Korean Maritime Safety Tribunal's investigation report noted that she'd successfully passed through the channel on another ship multiple times over. MVC Wall needed to make a turn, and this time, it would be fatal. As she approached this turn, life inside the ship went on blissfully unaware. Breakfast was being served in the cafeteria, and CCTV data taken at 8.40 a.m. showed students present and socializing on deck, filling the air with their chatter. One survivor, Choi Eun-sun, recalled going up on deck to have a cigarette shortly before disaster struck. Alright folks, a quick note before we continue with the sinking. If you have any ships you'd like us to cover, make sure to leave us a comment with your suggestions and you might hear your favorite ship here on the podcast. Check out our community tab to keep up with us and we're also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just before the accident, Park and Cho were standing shoulder to shoulder near the ship's wheel at the bridge and Captain Lee was absent from the bridge. We don't know why, but we know he wasn't there. 
MVC wall was traveling at 18 knots, which is 33 kilometers per hour or 21 miles per hour, at 8.46 a.m. at a course of about 136 degrees, when Park would order Cho to change the course from 135 degrees to 140 degrees, which Cho consequently undertook. What happens next is up for debate. According to the testimony given by Park, she'd used the radar to check that MVC Wall's course was changed and the new course was set to 140 degrees. And so she changed the course to 145 degrees, with this order being given at 8.48 a.m. She soon realized that MVC Wall was heavily listening to starboard, which led the bow to turn sharply to the right, and so she gave an order to turn the wheel to port. Immediately after giving this order, Cho exclaimed, the wheel isn't working, in a flustered voice, and the ship began to really list after this. Now, Cho's story is only minorly different from Park's. He agreed in his testimony that the listing began with that turn to 140 degrees. And according to him, he'd only received the order to change the course to 140 degrees, not 145. Seawall continued turning right with his hands on the wheel, and so he made two turns to the left equating to a five-degree turn. The ship did not stop her rightward turning, and she was eventually facing 145-degree course. Cho testified that Park gave the order to turn, quote, in the opposite direction at this moment, which he did. He turned the ship further to the left by 10 degrees, and so the total amount of the turn to the left was 15 degrees to the left. According to the conclusion later drawn by the court, Cho's steering led to the ship attempting a 15-degree turn for 40 seconds, and Cho, who was flustered by the ship turning faster than expected while he was following Park's order to turn to 145 degrees, attempted to turn to the left when he took Park's order to mean a turn in the opposite direction. He actually turned to the right, causing the front of the ship to rapidly turn right, and thus doomed the ship to capsizing. If you want to hear about another ship sinking involving the clumsiness of a helmsman, check out our episode on Costa Concordia. Since we have data from the ship's Voyage Data Recorder, or VDR, which is the ship equivalent to an airplane's black box, we are going to go minute per minute here for a bit, since seconds count in a capsizing. MVC Wall's track chart would be analyzed later by the Ministry of Oceans and Fisheries, and they would find that the ship's AIS, or Automatic Identification System, lost 36 seconds of data between 8.48 and 37 seconds and 8.49 and 13 seconds. Earlier reports and investigations first thought there was a small power outage, though Ha Yong-bum, the head of the expert advisory panel on the police prosecution joint investigation team, testified this was actually due to system limitations, so the system failure did not affect the steering. A power outage would have, but the AIS system glitching out definitely would not have. Passengers reported hearing a loud bang, and Cho sharply turned the ship from 135 to 150 degrees, with MVC wall beginning to list a port and tilt down toward the water. The cargo fell to one side of the ship, and this made it impossible for MVC wall to right herself, and allowed water to flood the ship through the side door of the cargo loading bay and the car entrance in the stern. Because of this, the ship would tilt for the longest two to three minutes of the passengers' and crew members' lives. At 8.50 a.m., MVC wall was lusting 30 degrees to port. Captain Lee immediately rushed to the bridge from his private cabin as this was happening, alarmed by the enormous listing. Shortly after this, all the ship's mates and helmsmen arrived to assist. 
Cho stopped the engines at about this time too, but we don't know if he did this of his own accord or if it was an order from Captain Lee. At 8.50 a.m., the engine room received an evacuation order from their assistant engineer via Cho. Park was in tears at this point, as I think any of us would be, and she cried until 9.06 a.m. The engines were off, and MVC wall became increasingly more unstable since she could no longer change directions and she began to drift sideways. A passenger would later testify that the lights went out after the ferry began to list. Now we get into the calls for rescue, the evacuation, and the total devastation of the capsizing. I'm just warning you, it will anger any normal, empathetic person with some of the events that occur here. As she started to sink, her intercom system went live with peculiar messages begging the passengers to not move, claiming it would be dangerous if they moved. To quote CNN, the announcement was as follows, quote, Do not move. Just stay where you are. It's dangerous if you move. So just stay where you are. This announcement repeated over and over, and it was made by a communications officer, Kang Hae-seung, and he'd not consulted the manual before making this broadcast. The first announcement went live by 8.52 a.m. at the latest, with the messages continuing even with water flooding passenger compartments. Ridiculously enough, other crew members went along with it, telling passengers to stay put. Remember that most of these passengers are impressionable teenagers and are therefore more likely to respond to authority and not question orders. Even Captain Lee repeated this order, even as he was leaving the ship, which is just deplorable. What makes the situation even worse is that the crew didn't even send out the first distress call. The first call for help was made by a Dan Wan high school student, Choi Duke Ha with his call to emergency services going out at 8.52 a.m., and he reported to the Jeolanamdo fire station that MVC wall had started to capsize. By 8.54 a.m., he was speaking with the Makpo Coast Guard and gave the latitude and longitude of the ship's location. Three minutes later, the Makpo Coast Guard Station Situation Room dispatched patrol vessel number 123 to the scene of the sinking, with this vessel being launched by 8.58 a.m. Patrol vessel number 123 followed the Coast Guard search and rescue manual, and so they were in charge of surveying the area of the sinking and quickly rescuing survivors. Unfortunately, Choi did not survive the sinking and his body was later recovered. Rest in peace to him. MV Seawall's crew would make their first distress call around 8.55 a.m. to Jeju VTS, asking them to notify the Korean Coast Guard, with the ship rolling heavily and in danger of capsizing. A minute later, the Jeju VTS notified the Korean Coast Guard, and three minutes after this, at 8.59 a.m., the Jeju Coast Guard called the Mokpo Coast Guard and found out that patrol vessel number 123 was on the way already. At 9.01 a.m., a crew member called the Incheon branch of Jin to report the situation, and the head office located in Jeju then phoned Captain Lee at 9.03 a.m., asking for a report on the situation. The Incheon branch of Jin spoke with the first mate in five different phone calls over the next 35 minutes as the ship was sinking. Jindo VTS were informed of the capsizing by the Makpo Coast Guard at 9.06 a.m. And for the following two minutes, Jindo VTS reached out to two other ships in the area and informed them that MVC wall was sinking. One confirmed visual contact with the vessel, and at 9.07 a.m., the ferry's crew confirmed she was indeed capsized and they needed the help of the Coast Guard. 
By 9.14 a.m., the crew claimed the ship's angle of heel was so steep that evacuation was impossible, and around this time, the captain of patrol vessel number 123 was appointed commander of the scene. After four minutes, the crew of MV Seawall reported to VTS that the ferry had rolled more than 50 degrees to port. At 9.24 a.m., the crew was ordered to inform the passengers they needed to don their life jackets, and the crew argued with VTS that their broadcasting equipment was broken. VTS didn't care. They told the crew they needed to manually tell each passenger. If Titanic's crew could do it with more than four times the amount of passengers, so could the seawalls. At 9.25 a.m., the VTS told Captain Lee they didn't have enough information to decide whether or not to evacuate the ship so he needed to make this decision and fast. To me, that's a no-brainer. Evacuate the vessel at all costs. Unfortunately, Captain Lee did not agree with me, and he told passengers to stay in their cabins. He'd made this decision based upon the fact that patrol boats were due on the scene in 10 minutes and a helicopter would be there within a minute. Well, there were too many passengers for one helicopter, so Captain Lee decided to leave the passengers behind, with messages on the ship's intercom repeatedly telling passengers not to move. Many of these passengers who were teenagers did listen to these messages, and they perished. Those who disobeyed and ran up on deck were able to dive into the water and were rescued. VTS received confirmation from nearby ships that they were volunteering to help with the rescue operations at 9.33 a.m., and VTS told all of these ships to approach and drop lifeboats for passengers in the water. At 9.38 a.m., communications between MV Seawall and the VTS were completely cut off, with roughly 150 to 160 passengers and crew jumping overboard to save themselves just three minutes later. This episode couldn't be possible without our lovely patrons. Thank you all so much. If you'd like to support the channel and future episodes, go to patreon.com shipwrecksunday to join. Next week, we will get into the rescue operations, the litigation, and controversy that surrounds the sinking of this vessel. For now, rest in peace to the victims of this devastating tragedy, and I hope that their friends, family, and loved ones have found justice and peace. We have covered another sinking that was mind-boggling as well and riddled with controversy, and that is the sinking of MV Estonia. And that is part one of MV Seawall's story. Thank you for tuning in to Shipwreck Sunday. Stay tuned next week for part two of the story of MV Seawall, a Korean ferry that capsized and sank under suspicious circumstances, killing 306 students and crew. Have a great week, and we'll see you next time.